So as we, as we gather, uh, our normal rhythm, what we do here on Sundays, is that we expositionally walk through the Bible, meaning that we usually go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, studying and seeing what that text says. And then whatever the main argument is of that text, that is the main argument of our sermon as we then try to apply God's word into our lives. So, so that's normally what we do. For example, we just wrapped up the book of Ephesians and next week, Lord willing, uh, we will be starting the book of 1 Timothy. And so this is something that we love to do as a church. We love to walk through books of the Bible together. And then every now and then we kind of take a pause for a couple of weeks and explore various topics that we see taught throughout the Bible, either systematically looking at things as we zoom out and see these threads that we pull all the way throughout God's word, or if there's something intentionally going on in the life of our church that we say, hey, we need to pause and just talk about something, uh, then, then we, we do that. Um, but, but either way, we're, our, our, our aim and our goal is primarily to be walking through books of the Bible. But today you find us in the very last week of a study that we are doing called Resolved. And in this study, what we've been striving to see kind of from a macro level is how Christians ought to live. What are some of the big overarching, big picture commands that we see from the Bible that we ought to root all of our lives upon? What are some things that we need to be firmly determined or resolved to doing with our lives? as we see God tell us throughout his word what those things are. And so to help frame some of our discussion on this macro level, we've been reading through and seeing how one pastor who lived a couple of hundred years ago, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, when he was 19 and 20 years old, he wrote down 70 resolutions from God's word. And so what we've been doing is practically examining some of those and thinking about our own lives and resolutions that we ought to have as God's people. What are some things we are firmly determined to doing in living out our faith here and now? So throughout our study, we've been focusing on not just healthy habits or things we want to do in 2023. Uh, it's not that kind of series. Uh, that will not happen here. Um, rather, uh, we were using this opportunity at the beginning of the year to think more critically and foundationally, not just for 2023, but more so how, what, how and what is the foundation that we are building our lives upon as God's people. What are the overarching demands of Christ through his word that is for us, not just for this year, but for until Christ returns or our eyes close in death and we open them and see his face. That is our big goal, our big aim of what we've been doing in this, in this study. So we, we want to, as Christians, ground everything that we, we say and believe on God's word as we strive to live industriously for the glory of God, being fueled by his grace and by being empowered by the spirit with a firm confidence then on God's word. So we've framed this entire study around this main question, how are we resolved, how are we firmly determined to live as God's people from what we know in his book, in the Bible? Knowing that with every decision, we are casting a vote for whose glory and what kingdom we are in fact living for. So as we started this study, uh, thinking through God's demand of week one, thinking through his demand that we live for his glory and leverage all that we are as we're fueled by grace to live for him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second week, we discussed how we as Christians are firmly determined to do that in such a way where we ground all of our knowledge of God and how to live as his people on the bedrock of God's inerrant, inspired, infallible, trustworthy, and profitable word, the Bible. And so the Bible then is the primary means that God has given us to grow into maturity as his people. And then last week, we talked about the command from Jesus that his disciples, that we as Christians, ought not to live in such a way where our singular 
purpose and aim in life is to simply amass as much riches as we possibly can in this life only, right? Where it can be stolen by thieves or more recently by governments or devalued by markets or gobbled up by inflation. No, we are resolved to live for a better kingdom, an abiding one, and to store up for ourselves as much joy and as much happiness and as many rewards as possible there in that kingdom, following the very commands of Jesus to do so, knowing it's for our ultimate good and his glory. So today, we're going to be wrapping up this study by looking at the Great Commission. And this final command of Jesus given to his disciples right before he ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And in doing so, we are going to be considering our duties, what are our responsibilities as Christians, seeing what does Jesus demand of us in our lives how he would have us to be resolved to living out the rest of our days with this overarching mission that God has given, not just to a select few, but to all of us as his people. Thus, as we will see, God's will for our lives is not some mysterious, hidden thing that we need to search and find out, right? Like you don't need some special message in your Cheerios. Spoiler alert, all you'll ever see is the word ooh, right? We don't need that. We don't need to go on some prayer retreat to get close to God and wonder, what is your will for me? No, God's word tells us what his will is for your life. It's found in the very pages of his book. And he tells us what his will is for us. It's not a mystery. He makes it abundantly clear. Thus, the only question is, will we be faithful to do what he has commanded us to do? So so the plan today is what we're going to do is we're going to bring together a couple of different passages. We're going to start in Matthew 28, but we're going to bring a couple of other ones, kind of like patches on a quilt, and we're going to be sewing them together during our sermon as we explain the robust call from Jesus to make disciples as he gives us this great commission. So the overarching resolution then, I'm going to give you the resolution up top, and then we're going to slowly work through it. All right? Great. So overarching resolution, we're going to be working through this, is this, resolved to making disciples by using our gifts to disciple one another and share our lives in the gospel with those who do not yet believe upon Jesus. So that's where we're going. In our sermon, we're gonna, we're gonna quilt this patch, just patch by patch together, and we're gonna see how everything stitches together to give us what God demands from us as his people. This is a resolution. Now, there are other things that we probably could add to this list. We can make it longer, but for today, this is what we're gonna focus on. This is the overarching mission of God for our lives, your life, my life, as Christians. So let's start by doing so by examining Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. If you have God's word, either uh, in paper copy or digital, if you wanna open there, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. So that's where we're going to first look at our first patch, uh, resolved to making disciples. Now, as you're turning there in your Bibles, I want to remind us of the context that this verse has in the book, right? Jesus has just spent three years with these disciples. They've heard him preach. They've seen the miracles that testify to the truthfulness of what he claims. And more recently, they have seen him be betrayed by Judas. And then they saw his body after it had been flogged. They saw him carry that cross up to Golgotha outside of the city. They saw him crucified, naked and exposed and humiliated. And they saw him die. And then three days later, they saw him rise from the dead. And he has this new resurrection body, one that will never suffer, one that will never be beaten or bruised ever again for our transgressions. But it does bear the marks of what he experienced for us, the marks of our salvation. 
And, and Jesus came to them a couple of times over the span of a number of weeks, uh, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God as we read in the book of Acts. And then we have Jesus's last words, his last command, his commissioning of these disciples. And in this great commission, Jesus gives these men and every Christian moving forward, marching orders of how they are to live out their days. And this is what he says. So Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we read, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now with that statement, Jesus is saying, he is the undisputed king over everything. Every nation, every heart. He has zero rivals. Then he says, go therefore and make disciples. Now the word make disciples is the main verb. If you remember, I remember this when I was a kid, there was a commercial. If you were a kid in the 90s, there's a commercial that said verbs. It's what you do. That's what, that's what this is. It's a verb. It's what you do. The command is make disciples. That's what you're to do. Now, where do you make disciples? Of all nations, everywhere. They're to plant the flag of Jesus and his absolute rulership over everything in every people group. Planting the worship of God where it does not exist so that people might hear the good news of Jesus in various languages as Christians tell them about the absolute authority that Jesus is the only king he is the king of heaven. There's no way to have salvation other than through him. And any other God is a demon who does not deserve your worship. This is what Jesus is telling them to do. Now, the other two verbs then explain how the main verb of making disciples is to be played out. So number one, they are then to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, our Trinitarian God. And then secondly, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Thus, as they are to, to go about and do all the things he has commanded them, they are under his authority and he is going with them, which would have been an incredibly comforting thought, knowing that they were not just out there doing this alone. Rather, God the Spirit is now living inside of them. The very presence of God is now within them and he has promised to never leave them or forsake them. And it's a really fitting conclusion to the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew because in chapter one, we read that Jesus is our Emmanuel, our God with us. And at the end of Matthew, I'll be with you always. This is like bookends in the book of Matthew reminding you of his presence with us. It's this beautiful, beautiful statement. And so as we examine this all-sweeping claim of Jesus to have all authority over every nation, tribe, and people, and the command to leverage our lives to going and making disciples of all nations by baptizing converts who hear the good news of Jesus and respond in faith and then teaching them to obey all the commands of Jesus, we come to understand that this is the great missionary task of those men who are originally hearing this command of Jesus. But then it also extends to every single person that Matthew is writing this letter to. He's describing how they are also to live. And then it trickles down throughout human history, down the ages to every single Christian that follows. This is the great commission. It is the command of Jesus for how all of us ought to be living our lives. Which is great news because if you ever wondered, well, what is God's will for my life? I don't know. You don't need to fret. You just need to look into God's word. His will for you is you leverage your life to make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching them. There you go. Do you need to worry, fret? Like, did I miss God's will for my life? Are you making disciples? Yes, then no. This is very clearly, very simply God's will for your life, that you would leverage all that you are to make disciples of all nations 
baptizing them and teaching them. Now, this is not a suggestion for a particular way of living for a handful of super Christians. Rather, it is a command to every single Christian that we are to be about our father's business. This is the great task that we are to designate our entire lives to so that in whatever else that we are doing as we go about our lives, whether it is raising chickens or raising children, whether it's bathing dogs or bathing children or or working jobs or going about your hobbies or choosing where to live or figuring out how to leverage your lives for his kingdom, everything in our life is centered around this command to make disciples. This is to be the work that all of the followers of Jesus ought to give their lives to, helping others to know and follow Jesus. And that's what we're going to be exploring today. But however, before we get into then thinking through a little bit more of what does it mean to make disciples and tease out various ways that we can do that, we need firstly to define our term. What does it mean to be a disciple? And then we need to examine our lives then to see if we are one, because there's no point in making disciples if we're not firstly a disciple. You would be a hypocrite. You don't, you don't want to be, the goal is not to be a hypocrite. Goal is be a disciple, then who makes disciples. Now, if that word disciple is new to you, a disciple is someone who follows someone else, right? So Gandhi, for example, had disciples. Muhammad has disciples. Bands, music bands have disciples. They follow them around all the place. TikTok stars, they have disciples, followers, I guess, people who follow them and take their sage advice. But that's not simply what we mean when we're talking about being a disciple of Jesus, It's not someone who just simply likes the teachings of Jesus or who thinks that Jesus is a cool guy who did some wonderful things. Rather, being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, identifies some of those, identified as someone who who believes upon Jesus, someone who has a personal relationship with Jesus, who identifies with Jesus and has this personal love and dependence and relationship with He is my savior, my God, my king. It's someone who loves and believes upon Jesus as their only hope in life and in death. They are, in effect, Christians. A disciple is a Christian. Now, Christians are not those who are born into Christian families. Christians are not those who are born into Christian countries. No, rather, they are those who have heard that there is a holy God who's created everything that exists and who made us in his image to glorify and to worship him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet the bad news of the Bible is that every single one of us has not done this. Rather, we've all gone astray and rebelled against God, wanting to go our own way. See, the Bible explains that this has been the case ever since Genesis chapter three, where our first father and mother wanted to be like God, to choose for themselves what is good and what is evil. They didn't want to submit to God's decisions and judgments. They didn't want to listen to his word. Rather, they wanted to go their own way. And because of this, they rebelled against God's word as they questioned his judgments and rebelled against him, breaking his laws. And because of this rebellion, they experienced shame and regret for the very first time. And because of this rebellion, the world was plunged into brokenness so that the world that we live in now is just marred by sin and rebellion. So so that we're all born into this world as having a broken relationship with God and with one another and within ourselves and even with creation. Things are not as they ought to be. The Bible doesn't explain that we, we are born into this world as spiritually positive towards God, nor as spiritually neutral towards him. 
Rather, the Bible explains that we come into this world as enemies of God, Romans 5.10, as slaves to sin, Romans 6.20, unable and unwilling to turn to God by faith because we despise him, John chapter three, as we have been blinded by Satan to the light of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4, and we are those who by nature suppress the truth of God, Romans 1. And because of this, we are without God and without excuse, Ephesians 2.12. Because of this, we deserve nothing before God except to face the judgment of God against our many sins, to spend eternity future in the life to come, suffering under the perpetual torment of the wrath of God in what the Bible describes as the lake of fire, along with Satan and demons. We see this in Revelation chapter 20. Friends, this is not a flattering picture, nor is it meant to be. It is to be a frightening picture for you to fall into the hands of the living God and suffer under his wrath for your sin ought to literally scare the hell out of you. And that's the point. And anytime that we mitigate that and say, oh, well, I know it says that, but it's not real. It's not a loving thing to do or a kind thing to do. Friends, to talk about the wrath of God as if it's not a scary and damning and terrifying thing is the most unloving thing that we could possibly do towards another person for their soul is at stake friend if you're here and you're not a christian you need to be warned that there is wrath that is upon you and if you do not repent from your sins and trust in christ you will spend eternity future suffering under the righteous wrath of god And it's important to be reminded of what we deserve before God because it actually makes the grace, the kindness, and love of God that much greater. See, friends, we should be treated as the enemies of God, and yet God is rich towards us in mercy. He's abounding in steadfast love, and he's made a way for guilty sinners like us to be saved from facing the wrath that we deserve. And that is what Jesus has come to do. That is why he dies on the cross. That is the gospel that God, the son, Jesus, whom we have offended and sinned against, laid humanity alongside of his divinity and stepped into time, demonstrating to us who the father is by living a perfect, spotless, sinless life in our place, never rebelling against God, the father, against his word or his judgments. And then he who knew no sin, the God we have sinned against, was counted as sinful in our place, facing all of the Father's wrath against our sin on him, on the tree. That's the only reason that he died. He did not come to die to let you have a victorious life. He did not come to die so that you would just not know shame. No, friend, he came to die on a cross facing the Father's wrath against your sin. This is the God of the Bible. And this is the only way to have forgiveness of sins is by turning by faith, repenting from your sins and believing upon Jesus who was crushed, facing an excruciating death and yet who was crushed under the tsunami of the Father's wrath against our sin as he stood condemned, paying that penalty, demonstrating his great love for us, which we don't deserve and can't earn. Friends, he is the author of life and he died the death in our place that we deserve. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering over Satan's sin and death so that we who are guilty might be forgiven. 
See, one pastor, he explained it like this. Being a disciple of Jesus, in other words, does not begin with something we do. It begins with something that Christ did. Jesus is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, John 10, 11. He loved the church and therefore gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5, 25. He paid a debt that he did not owe, but that we owe, and then united us to himself as his holy people. And friends, that is good news. So before we start talking about what a disciple is and how we're commanded to live our lives, the question firstly is, are you a disciple of Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus? Have you repented of sin and turned by faith to Jesus? And if not, then, then friend, the wrath of God is on you now. If you were to die, you would spend eternity future suffering under the wrath of God against your sin. But the good news is that you don't have to. Right now, you can turn to Jesus and he will not reject you. He will forgive you, and cleanse you, clothe you with righteousness. All you must do is repent of your sins and believe upon Jesus as your God, King, and Savior, as your only hope in life and in death. And the only one who can justify before, before, you, before the Father on that day is him. So come and believe upon him, even right now in your heart. And it's so important because we don't want to talk about being a disciple for not a disciple. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be religious Pharisees. We want to examine our lives and see if there are actually evidences in our life that we are in Christ. Are we repentant over sin? Are we lovers of money? Do we conform to Jesus' word? This is important because the rest of the sermon is for Christians to know how we ought to live. So if you're here kicking the tires on Christianity, exploring what it means to follow Jesus, this is helpful for you to know what it means to follow Jesus as you explore Christianity. But I don't want you to miss the point of the importance of this in your life right now. So you can come to Jesus now. So, back to Matthew 28. So we're to be resolved, firmly determined to make disciples. Now, again, the main verb is uh, to make disciples, and there's two verbs of how you live that out. So as disciples of Jesus, you intentionally go into the world to make disciples, help other people become Christians, know the things of God. So what are we to do? Well, firstly, we are to baptize these new disciples as they come to believe upon Jesus. Now, baptism is this word baptizo, which means to dip or to immerse something underwater. It's how your shirt became a different color, and it's not white, unless your shirt is white, of course. In the Bible, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, baptism also occurs, uh, 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 only occurs after someone becomes a Christian. After someone has repented of their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus, baptism, therefore, in the Bible is your first public act to demonstrate that you are identifying with Jesus's life, death, burial, and resurrection. Thus, a crucial preliminary step to biblical baptism is that someone needs to hear the bad news of the Bible and then the good news of the Bible, and they need to have faith to believe that they have earned and deserved the judgment of God, but that Jesus, God the Son, paid their penalty so they can be saved. So baptism, therefore, is described in the Bible is only reserved for those who have professed with their lips that Jesus is Lord, their God, King, and Savior, who have repented of their sin, turned away from it, different way of living, and who now believe in their heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. Baptism, then, is to be the very first public act of obedience in the life of every Christian, where we identify with Jesus and keep his command. 
Now, this is important because as these disciples go out into the world unto all nations sharing the gospel, baptism is the means by which they will identify those who come to know Christ and identify them with God's people. It is the external sign that they need to know as they go out and they make disciples. Okay, how do, how do we know we've made disciples? Well, have they come to believe, trust on Jesus? They repented of sin? Yes, they have. Great, so baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit so they believe in this Trinitarian God. So as these people repent of sin and believe on Jesus, that, that person then is baptized. And, and baptism is this beautiful event where one Christian, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, it, it's this beautiful event where one Christian comes to another Christian, someone who's become a Christian, they come to another Christian and they submit themselves to them. Let me explain what I mean. Well, firstly, you're not able to baptize yourself. So someone else baptizes you. So you literally have to submit yourself to actually being put underwater by another person. Uh, so you're literally saying, yes, you can dunk me. And they say, great. Uh, so you're, you're doing it that way. But, but in, a, in a much greater way, um, you're submitting yourself to this individual, looking at your life and testing it. They see your profession of faith, but what they do as the person who is baptizing you, they hear your profession of faith, but then they also must look at your life. Are there evidences of this in your life? Right, so, so anytime that someone is baptized, the people performing the baptism upon someone, they are asserting that this person who they are baptizing, their profession of faith is genuine. So anytime someone gets baptized, their life has been assessed by whoever it is that is baptizing them. Thus, our job as we go out and make disciples is not to give someone false assurance that they are in the family of God when they are not, right? We don't wanna lie to someone to protect their feelings. Rather, we want them to be saved. And so if this person wanting to be baptized is believing some lie about Jesus that is necessary for salvation. So for example, if they don't believe that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, rather if they believe Jesus was just a good man or a good prophet, or maybe a man who became God, then Christians should not baptize that person because that person is not a Christian by their profession of faith. Or secondarily, if your profession of faith was genuine, you genuinely are a Christian, but you're still dealing black tar heroin and fentanyl, probably not gonna baptize you. The evidence from your life, not there, uh, right? Maybe let's quit, let's, let's deal with, stop dealing black tar heroin, all right, okay, uh, then that, by repenting of that, oh, look, evidence that you're a Christian. Uh, so, so you can either be there with the profession or their very life, but the church's job, the Christian's job is to ensure they were examining someone's profession of faith and life, assessing these things and asking, do they match? And so if, if there's no biblical reason why they should not be kept from baptizing, if they, their profession of faith and their life do, then there's no reason actually biblically why this person should be kept from being baptized whether they are seven or 95. Thus, the church is simply saying when they baptize someone, the church looks at the individual and says, well, as far as I can tell, by your profession of faith and your life of repentance and your faith upon Jesus, we believe you are a Christian. But in another way, this is also what's happened. Reciprocally, the person who is being baptized, they say to the church who is baptizing them, well, as far as I can tell, you are faithful Christians who love God's word and preach the gospel. And I want this church to help oversee my discipleship as they teach me God's word. And if I don't conform to God's word, I need you to help hold me accountable. Then that person is baptized. That's the first thing that we see in making disciples is that the goal is to have credible witnesses. 
those whose profession of faith and their life match. And these are baptized. And this is the sign that someone has been born again by the Spirit. They are a new creation. They are Christians. Thus, in making disciples as a local church, we have a crucial part in proclaiming the gospel and in recognizing professions of faith as we give witness to God's work in the lives of those who we are gospeling. Right? Part of our commission is to baptize these new brothers and sisters, to welcome them into the family of God as we witness what God has done in their heart and then welcome them in. And we are also commanded to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us, which means that all of us have the job of helping one another as members, as Christians, especially our new brothers and sisters. We need to help teach them how to read the Bible. We need to teach them how to know the commands of Jesus as we walk through and confront various things that might come up in their life and then patiently walk with them as we strive to care for this new brother or sister. And this is God's will for your life and his will for my life. We are to give ourselves to sharing the gospel with others, trusting in God to save people as they hear the voice of Jesus in your voice and they come to repent of sins and believe upon Jesus, then we are to baptize them, to welcome them in as these new family members, as they believe and profess in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and we're to teach them to observe all of Jesus' commands. This is what we are to be resolved to doing, spending our lives to making disciples. And again, this isn't just for an elite kind of Christian. This is God's command for all of us as Christians. Now, some of us will spend our lives making disciples here in Winnipeg, of the many different languages and people groups, the all nations that we have here, uh, who are our neighbors, friends, coworkers, et cetera. For others of us, you might be feeling a call to pick up and move to another city, like, oh, I don't know, maybe Calgary or so, uh, to reach that city and the various people from nations who live there, while others of us might leverage our jobs uh, and, and become church planners internationally in some international city like Dubai or Shanghai. Right? in order to fulfill the Great Commission as we seek to make disciples of those surrounding nations. Additionally, some of us will go on week-long trips to participate in the Great Commission within Canada and into the nations. And others of us will help raise support so that others might be able to go and do likewise. Regardless, we all have different gifts and roles in helping accomplish this Great Commission with different people that we come into contact with from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Yet the command to make disciples is for all of us that we all have. As 1 Peter 2.9 says, we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? Thus, gospel proclaiming, disciple making job description is given to all of us. Every single one of us. We are all to leverage our lives to make disciples here and now. And if he calls us to go elsewhere, we have the same commission then and there. Now, so you might wonder, well, then should I take this job here or that job there? Or to which unreached people group should I go? Should I stay here in Winnipeg and help continue to lay the foundation of this church until God might call me to plant another church one day or stick around here with Aaron because he says he wants to be here 40 years? We'll see what the Lord does, but he wants to be here 40. Am I gonna just be here for 40 years with him, hanging out? Maybe. I pray that he does. He should stay with me. Or, or maybe not. Maybe you should move to Calgary. So you might wonder, well, what do you want me to do, God? And the answer is simple. God's desire is for you to make disciples and to do it of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinitarian God of the Bible and teaching them to deserve all that Jesus has commanded us. See, you can be faithful here or there. You can be faithful at your current job or that one or that other one. You can be faithless at that job or that other one or faithless living here or there. 
But as long as you are giving yourselves to making disciples wherever you are, that you are fulfilling the very will of God. As you're being faithful to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, that is God's will for you. It's not mysterious. It's very blatantly known. So, so not only are we to participate in this great commission, but one of the most beautiful things to be reminded of as well is that we've all been equipped by God to play different parts in his purposes and plans. We've all been given different gifts by God the Spirit so that none of us is intended to sit on the bleachers and watch other people use their gifts, but rather we are all called to get off the bleachers and to get into the game because none of us has the exact same gift mix and personality mixes as those around us. And we have a commission to get on with. Thus, we all have different roles to play in seeing the kingdom of God advance as we make disciples. See, God has given us everything that we need to do what he's calling us to do. We have Jesus' presence with us. We have the spirit inside of us, empowering us and helping us to will and to work for the good pleasure of the Father. And we have gifts that have been given to us that we might build up our church in this task. So, so if we were to add into our little resolution that we're making, so resolve to make Resolve to make disciples by using our gifts. And there are a couple of places that we could go, but I'm gonna choose 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, open to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses four to 11. This is what God's word says. It says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the spirit, the utterance of wisdom, to another, the utterance of knowledge, according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of one spirit. Now, I don't have time to walk through all of these gifts and what they mean, but thankfully we did a base camp episode a couple months ago on our podcast channel for discipleship, so if you want to go there and listen to that whenever you want to, blessings on you. But I do want to point out that one of the coolest things that we have in here is that when you became a Christian is that you were given gifts by God the Spirit to be used for the common good, to build others up. You became a member of Christ's body with a role to play. And as you play it, the church body that you're a part of becomes healthy. And as you refuse to use your gift, our body is lacking that part of the body that is your role to play. Now, during our gathering here on Sundays, there are only a few of us who use our gifts in noticeable ways, right? So the sound folks, primarily Darren, who's made our sound system a million times better than when I did when I was trying to purchase things for our sound system because I do not know what I'm buying. Darren comes along and uses his gifts and makes things a million times better. And his great work allows God's word to be shared with amplification for us to be able to record these sermons and put them online. That's a way that's easy to be listened to. Thus, his work helps the gospel go forth in amazing ways. The preachers of our church they are those who open God's word and help us grow in the knowledge of Jesus' commands so that our lives can conform to his word uh, as well. And then there are the team that helps lead music, helping literally fill our mouths with rich theology put to music to help us remember gospel truths. 
Then there are the wonderful kids' teachers who use their gifts every week of teaching and administration to come alongside of us as parents to help disciple our kids during the sermon. And there's even the slide clickers, my friends over there, those who help us sing words to songs, because I, I don't know about you, I'm not good at remembering songs. I could have sung a song 18,000 times. I don't know the words. So you're a godsend for me. Uh, and uh, also helps make sermons a little bit understand, uh, more understandable and easily, easily followable. There's also the cafe and hospitality team. They use their gifts to make you feel thought of and welcomed. And the setup team who arrives early to make sure that you know where to park and that our building is clearly, clearly visible if it's one of your very first times gathering with us. And all these individuals have gifts they're using to serve us as we gather, and I'm thankful that they do so. But these are not the only gifts that are being used when we gather together as a church. No, most of the gifts that are used on a Sunday are never actually seen other than in a million indiscernible ways. So for example, when I see someone who's new who walks in and they don't know where to go, and they're met by a friendly face, your friendly face, that says, hello, and asks if it's one of their first times and shows them where the coffee machines and the washrooms are and where kids check in and, and all those things. Others of you intentionally are on the lookout during sermons and times of singing together, scanning the room and praying for those that are in here with us and making note of those who are not here so that you can make sure that they are well cared for and looked after. Is somebody sick in their family? Do they need something? Also, after the gathering, there are hundreds of conversations, some big, some small, where people are checking in on one another and celebrating with one another. Often, if you're with me, crying together or uh, praying together, asking the Lord to move in some situation going on. And there's a million, million ways outside of, 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 of just even this gathering as well in, in the rest of our lives where we use our gifts as Christians, right? As we send texts to one another to check on how we're doing, or as people add a prayer request into our signal chat, or when we make meals and meet physical and practical needs for one another as we walk through sickness and loss. I mean, the meals that get made, the prayers offered, the comfort and assurance of God's love and his sovereignty that have been brought to bear in someone's life are precious. That is using your gifts for the common good. It's a beautiful demonstration of all the various gifts that God has given to us as a body. Not only that, but God has given us brothers and sisters who love to teach and explain sermons and tease it out into individual lives, which they do in small groups and men's and women's studies that they lead and join throughout the week. We have those who love to open their houses to one another for play dates and coffee and friendships, hearing testimonies and stories of grace to further build relationships as a church family as we seek to care for one another. And I could keep going every week as I just see a million ways that God has gifted the men and women of this church with a variety of gifts for our common good as we seek to serve, bless, and encourage one another towards faithfulness and patient endurance as a church. And it's such a joy for me to be a part of this ministry and to see you using your gifts, both publicly and then the ways that I know privately that you're doing so. And I've said so many times before, but it just keeps being more and more true the longer that we're together as a church and so I just want to fan this into, into flame, all these gifts in your life. Because, because I've, I've experienced and felt in this church a level of care and love by a church family that I've just never experienced. Which is, I think, one of the coolest things in our church. The way that people just care for one another and love one another and provide for one another and serve one another and open up their lives to one another. And so I just want to say, like, keep it up. Uh, like, like, keep... Keep doing that because it's part of this great commission that we've been called to, using your gifts to serve others for the common good. 
Uh, but this is also something that we need to continue to be resolved to doing, firmly established in it, to using our gifts to encourage others, to bless them and strengthen one another as we also seek to disciple one another. So let's recap. We're disciples. We're Christians. We've been brought together into this local church to live out our identity as Christians and how we encourage, exhort, reprove, and rebuke one another. And we're called to disciple one another. Now, you might be wondering, what does it mean to disciple others? Well, let's use this working definition. To disciple others means to deliberately do some spiritual good to one another so that we are helping one another grow into conformity to God's word as his people. Thus, we ought to examine our lives to see if this is something that we are resolved, firmly determined to do with our lives. For example, are we meeting together with others and trying to find ways to pursue their spiritual good? Or are we just hanging out and playing board games? Now, there's nothing wrong with board games. Uh, everybody loves people and parties and fun, right? But are we leveraging those times as Christians to actually find a way that we can do spiritual good with one another? This doesn't mean that every time you hang out, you gotta have a 55-minute prayer gathering and four minutes of playing a video game. But, but it does mean maybe by the end of the night when you're leaving, just even a quick like, hey, is there any way I can be praying for you? Or like, is there anything kind of going on in your life that, man, that I can just encourage you in or anything like that? It could be even something as simple as that. But trying to find ways, even when we're together, of ways, how can I do you some spiritual good? And begin thinking through that, actually, in our lives with one another. And it's interesting as well, oftentimes when we get together, it can be easy to participate in things like crude jokes or gossiping or anger. But, but there's also a great way where we could gently correct one another when necessary. We can gently bring words of encouragement when things come up together in conversations and we can pray for one another, encourage one another. And so I was thinking about this this week. If you're married, I was thinking about that in marriage. Do you think about that in marriage? Do you think about your role in discipling your spouse? That God has given you your spouse to do them some spiritual good. Are, Are you trying to find ways to do your spouse some spiritual good. So we should, this is what we should be trying to do as God's people. Are we doing them some spiritual good? Are we thinking of ways to pray for them and encourage them? Do we let them know that we're praying for them? Are we praying for them? And then what about your kids? It's easy to think about maybe discipleship relationships you might have like in small groups or you know, men's groups or women's group, but, but we have an opportunity to be very intentional as well with our kids. Are we trying to do them some spiritual good? kids and teenagers, you specifically, what about you? Are you thinking about the very unique role that you have as a kid to do your parents some spiritual good? Did you know God could use you in their life to help your mom and dad to grow in godliness as you pray for them, as you strive to find ways to do them some spiritual good? They're not just there when you're in your teenage years to get annoyed at them. They're there for you to learn to find ways to do spiritual good to them. Also, as we saw in Ephesians, kids, are we trying to do some spiritual good as you submit to them as your parent and make it a joy to be your parent? See, this isn't just a command for your moms and dads, but this is a command for any of you who have repented of your sin and believe upon Jesus. Thus, brother and sister, leverage your life. Make the best use of the time for the days are evil. And we need to be industrious and ambitious in this. So if you see needs, don't wait for other people to start a ministry or to meet someone's need. The very fact that you can uh, 
that you see something and can meet a need is a great indication that God might be just be calling you to start that thing and to meet that need. So if you wish there was a small group in your area, or if you wish there was a Christian school near you, or if you wish that someone would just start a, that Bible study or that book study, then I would say God might just be calling you to be the one to start that very same thing. And the worst case scenario is if you try to start this thing and it doesn't work, guess what? You tried and stepped out in faith and you tried. So get back out there and try again. Try something else. Let me also acknowledge that some of us come from church backgrounds where these things were kind of frowned upon, right? Like decisions about holding a Bible study had to go through 18 channels of meetings before you could ever do anything, ever. And then maybe they'd be like, still, no. Well, around here, we think it's good for people to want to start a Bible study or read through the Bible with other people and discuss it. Imagine that. And so if you feel like you want to try to start something, here's my permission slip. Do it. Go for it. If you, if you want help along the way, Reach out to others that you know who, who have done what it is that you want to do and ask their advice. How do I get this started? If you don't know, ask me. I'll help assess you and equip you. But, but it's a wonderful desire to want to do that, to do someone some spiritual good. So give your lives to it. Let me also say, there are certain things that people need to pray about doing. That's legitimate. There are certain things people need to pray about doing. Starting a Bible study, starting a men's or women's discipleship group or reading through a book or a book of the Bible with someone is not something you need to pray about doing. You just need to do it. This is not something you say, I just need to wait and see if the Lord wants me to maybe do some spiritual good to someone. No, just do it. There's no reason to not. Get off the, get off the bleachers, give it a shot, jump in the game. Do some spiritual good to those who are around you, armed with the Bible and God the Spirit leading you as you go. And we want to be a church that helps equip you as best as we can so that you can then do likewise to others. And here's where we will begin landing our plane as we're thinking about all that we're resolved to do. So we're going to end it by saying our, our phrase. Here it is. Resolve to making disciples by using our gifts to disciple one another and share our lives in the gospel with those who do not yet believe upon Jesus. Now, this last bit of a phrase comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And it says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Now, most scholars and Bible teachers would agree when looking here, what Paul is doing, he's not simply saying what he did in Thessalonica, but what his typical ministry was like. This is the warp and woof of everything that he did in his ministry. This was his playbook. So he would come into a city, find out where people are gathering, either in those, and, and meet in those spaces, starting with the synagogue where he could reason with them from the Jewish scriptures and then demonstrating how Jesus is the Messiah. And then after that, he would head out of the synagogue into the city, find out where people are at, find inroads to begin sharing the gospel with them. And as he did, one thing that he constantly did because he was affectionately desirous of these, of these people was share his life with them. He shared the hope of the gospel and his self with them. His strategy was very similar to Jesus's strategy. Lots of time with people, answering questions, teaching them from the Bible over meals at work and in the marketplace. Thus, his discipleship strategy was simply to spend time with people and share the gospel with them as he did so. And as he shared the gospel and his life with them, they became dear to him and they became Christians. In fact, right before this passage, Paul explains he never came with words of flattery or a pretext for greed, nor did he seek glory from people, but he was gentle among them like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then right after verse eight, he talks about how he was also like a father with his children. And he exhorted each one of you and, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. And what was the result of his ministry in Thessalonians and all over the place as he went and, and preached the gospel? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, this is the kind of reception that he had among them. He said, you know how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Thus, the impact of Paul bringing the gospel into places like Thessalonica was that people heard that there was wrath to be delivered from that was only available through Jesus, who stood condemned in their place so that they would not be found guilty. Then he was raised from the dead. Thus, these Thessalonians believed this was true. The result of this, they turned to God from idols. They repented of their old idolatrous ways and they turned towards Jesus. They repented and believed. And now they are giving their lives to serving and living after God as they're awaiting for Jesus's second coming. Thus the whole impact of Paul taking seriously the call to make disciples among the nations by using the gifts that God gave him as he baptized and taught others about Jesus, as he discipled them and shared his life and gospel with others that were outside of God's kingdom so they might hear the gospel and come as they repented of sins, their idolatry and believed upon Jesus, that is how the gospel went forth. And friend, this is how the gospel came to you. This is how you learned about Jesus. As other people, people before you, took seriously this call to make disciples and to share their lives and the gospel with you, using their gifts and presenting the good news and the bad news of the Bible. So you heard this news and hearing it, you're given faith to believe upon Jesus. Now as disciples, this is also our call. This is our job. And throughout the last 23 years of my life, I'm older than that, but for the last 23 years of my life, these are the things that I've been resolved to doing, to living in this way. I was at a youth camp when I was taught about the Great Commission and how God intends to use every single Christian's life to accomplish his purposes and plans of seeing the nations come to know Jesus. And when I was 13, I started using my gifts for the common good. I started a music ministry in my youth group. Y'all, it was terrible. I had no rhythm. It was those old days where like, you remember the the projectors where you could like, you put the slide down and it would go up on the wall behind you. It was that. Um, No rhythm, old slide projectors. It was the worst. I was 13. My voice is cracking. It was the worst but I wanted to be faithful. And I was resolved to using whatever gift I had for the common good. And it wasn't very good, but it was a little good. So, and then when I was 17, I became resolved to sharing my life in the gospel with those who were far from Jesus that I might do them spiritual good, which, which ended up landing me as a youth pastor at a church when I was 18, taking me to France uh, as a 21-year-old for a couple of months, and then moving to Canada as a single 24-year-old, simply trying to be faithful to this resolution to make disciples, use my gifts, disciple others, and share my life in the gospel with those who are far from Jesus so they might repent of their sins and turn and believe upon Christ. Brothers and sisters, following this resolution, though it might be easy to say in a sentence, it will cost you everything. And it's worth it. Now, before we close... If you've been waiting the entire sermon to find out how I'm going to be talking about Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions, because I've not mentioned one of his resolutions at all. I have three of them very quickly, and then we'll be done. So he, he has some great ones. He has nothing about making disciples at all. I read through all of them. I'm like, what? You're not resolved to making disciples, Jonathan Edwards? Uh, you've got 70 of them, and you missed the big E on the Christian eye chart? Like, what is going on? Anyway, we'll talk about that in heaven. Um, he, has, <laughs> he has some great ones, though. Um, Number six, this is what he says. He says, resolve to live with all my might while I live. That's a great one. 62, resolve to never do anything but duty. 
By this, he means his responsibilities as a Christian man, the things we've just been talking about. And then according to Ephesians 6, 6 to 8, to do it willingly and cheerfully as unto the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good thing any man doth, that the same shall he receive of the Lord. And then number 52, he says, I frequently hear old per- or persons in old age saying how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolved. I will live just so I can, as I can think I shall wish I had done supposing I live to old age. So while Edwards doesn't have a resolution like the one that we crafted together, that's fine. But what we see here is the importance of living our lives for the glory of his kingdom and not our own. Friends, C.T. Studd was right when he said, this one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ shall last. So as we leave the examination of Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions, my question for you is, I wonder what kind of resolutions you have for your life as a Christian. How are you firmly committed to living? What does this look like in your life? So friends, examine your life and commit to striving to obey the demands of God for us as his people. And as you do, may we live so faithfully, passionately, generously, joyfully, and lovingly, placing our hope in that future kingdom, that our lives may speak of a better hope through the gospel to a world that desperately needs it. May we leverage our lives, laying down the blank check of our lives so that we do not labor in vain. Let us run the race laid out for us with great confidence knowing that you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have believed upon Christ and are covered in his righteousness. Therefore, live in such a way as to be faithful stewards, hearing this refrain again, knowing that our good works go before us, committing the spirit at work in us and confirming our adoption into his family. Keep living for that future kingdom. Store up as much joy for yourself on that day when everything is brought to light. Let's pray. So Father, I wanna thank you for your word and and thank you for the way that you use it so powerfully in our lives. I pray, God, for for my brothers and sisters in our church that we continue to live, to, to leverage all that we are, all of our lives for your kingdom. I pray that you would lead us by your spirit that you would empower us by your spirit to take seriously your word, that we might give our lives to making disciples, give our lives to using our gifts that you have graciously given as faithful stewards, that that we also might disciple others, that we might do them some spiritual good. And then as we go out into the world and share our lives in the gospel with others, may they come to believe upon Jesus as we have by your spirit moving in their lives and giving them faith to believe upon Jesus. And then may we have the great joy of seeing people baptized, confirming what you're doing in and through their lives, and then give our lives to teaching them to obey every command that we see in your word. God, continue to use our lives. Thank you that you do so. I love you and we're thankful for all that you've given us in the gospel. May we be resolved.